Hello everyone and welcome back to the Booked and Busy podcast where I open books and then I open my big mouth to talk about them. What a special guest we've got with us today. So this is Joel Taylor. You may know her as like the fantastic working class, proud lesbian poet. But now the absolute legend has wrote a book and it's so good. It's insane. Um, so yeah, everyone, please enjoy listening. I would just like to disclaim though that in the first sort of segment running towards the end, we did have like a bit of like technical difficulties. So it sort of lags a little bit. I don't think it will affect the audio so much. Um, but there's like between where I put like the little interlude song, that's where we sort of had to dip out and then join back on. But it's still a very cohesive and very fun interview. And the things that come out of Joelle's mouth are just so impressive. So yeah, enjoy everyone. Hi Joel, thank you so much for coming on the Booked and Busy podcast. I'm so excited to have you here and to talk about the night alphabet and just you in general. So hello. Well, hello, how are you? Thanks so much for inviting me on. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. <laughs> a joy, honestly, a, a joy. joy. <laughs> <laughs> I love. I feel like we've got such good energy already that I'm like so excited. So Joel, just. In case no one in, who's listening knows who you are, which I highly doubt, just like fill us in. Who are you? What do you like been your sort of journey to where you okay. are now? From the off, anything and everything. everything. So basically, I mean, um, I'm a poet, often known as like a, a either a spoken word artist. Um, but then recently I started winning big literary prizes as well for, for, for writing like the T.S. Eliot Prize for my last collection. But basically what I do is, is I write poetry and I write ideas and stories and plays. And then I try to create projects around them so I can lead masterclasses and workshops with um, people who are like myself, other, other um, working class artists or women from marginalized communities. And then I tried to take that work and take it on the road. So I like to tour it. But before all of that, before I started doing all of that, I, I founded the National Youth Slam Championship Slam Ambassadors for the Poetry Society and kind of brought or popularized slam poetry in this country for about 18 years. Um, so I've kind of a huge um, history in working with really naughty, naughty young people who are my favorite. Of course. The best. The best. Oh, so the best. That's so funny because I'm literally like in my like day-to-day job, I work with like young people. I like my backgrounds you've worked. So you are preaching to the choir. So I'm with yeah. you there. But that's so it's also so interesting because I think when you grow up in a working class sort of background, you don't you can't really envisage um like a career out of it. Yes. Um that's not you're going to struggle and we can't afford to struggle. So it's like what do you possibly do? I mean, I mean, it's it was a lot easier for my generation. I'm 56, so I, I left university in 1990. It took me a long time to get to university because I'm mm. from a background where that simply doesn't happen, so it took a long fight to get there. But yeah. because we had no sense of it being a career, because we were underclass, because we were written off by the whole of society, mm. we came together and supported one another, and we were able to do that because... We were we were um, able to squat and we set up these big art squats. Um, wow. This generation, it's illegal to squat. You will go to prison. There is no support. Things we did were like go go on um, NFA, no fixed abode, and get our mm. doll 
every fortnight and that enabled us all to club our doll together and seriously we put on shows we put on productions we helped each wow. other learn how to write you know so but as a part of that as a working class artist you have to accept an apprenticeship period and it's an yes. apprenticeship poverty and that can last a long long time and it you know it's one of the very unfortunate things about the arts and the way it's marketed to working class people we all think it's going to be we're like cliff richard like we're going to be singing in a cafe one night when suddenly we're in carnegie hall um because <laughs> we're talented we're one yeah. in a generation when as anybody's actually involved in literature or the arts in any respect knows that there's no such thing as talent there's things we're interested in that we work on yeah. and you know I've, I've really rambled here because it's such a no, huge no I don't think it's rambling I, honestly I generally find it so interesting and I didn't know that like that was something that people did yes so I think it's important the, the, the project the project of the Tory government has been to isolate communities it's and it's worked you know in all kinds of different ways not yeah. to do with literature honestly not a big fan of the Tories and I'm proud to say that <laughs> no <laughs> not for me doesn't support me <laughs> but no, I think that's so like interesting but I, I, th I liked the idea of what you said there about talent and how it's like no one's specifically like immensely talented in that thing it's more like you're interested in something you hone your craft you grind and mm. hope for the best essentially yeah. Yeah, and if you've got, if you're coming from a more middle class background where you've got more access to people who are in the arts yeah. and maybe lots of books and maybe your parents once a month go to the theatre with you and it's normalised, yeah. you're going to be appear more talented because yeah. you have more of that, you know, the information coming in and and being able to, to evolve from that. You know, it's not just, just the context, but the self-belief. And the, well, that the is it, isn't it? And like growing up working class is like three different sections it's like culturally economically and also generally like the access to just general other things that you have around you and like even if like you enter a room and people are talking they're talking in a specific way where it can be a bit like isolating but it's just something that people who don't grow up working class or like higher class are sort of naturally inherit and then they come more secure so it can I mean, I'm like yeah. Northern. So it's <laughs> a journey between really difficult. Um, you know, we could talk for hours about our uh, interns in yeah. artist organisations and how the fact that we are expected or an intern is expected to work for free, you know, which is impossible for somebody from background which isn't you know filled with riches or or just just the comfort of a of a bank account or you know or, or daddy that kind of thing. And what that actually means in terms of literature is that uh, the narratives are pared down and down mm. and down and down. And I believe a book is a mirror or should be. Yeah. You should be able to see yourself in it. And, you know, by withdrawing money from the arts and opportunities for different marginalised writers, and uh, um, it just means that our narratives are disappearing. Mm. So talk to me then about... You went from squatting and hosting your own performances to now where you are, which is, you know, you've got your book coming out and Alphabet comes out next week. You're hosting like stage productions of it all. It's also exciting. And obviously there was also like Kunzo and the poetry sort of collections there. So talk me through that sort of like journey. 
so I mean I'm, I mean I've always written prose but it's never been really published except the odd story in a magazine um but my poetry career really really took off and it took off like I said earlier as a slam poet um and a spoken word poet um but then as times progressed once I started getting that work published I fell in love with the page because I think I think all literature is water and it has to become the shape of the vessel that holds it so poetry on the stage is a very different shape to poetry on the page. And so my journey has been trying to find a link between my stage work and my, my written work and the published work um, in which each one is kind of elevated. So that's been a focus for pretty much my entire life. Um, and then I won the T.S. Eliot Prize, which is the biggest prize in, in poetry. Um, and that opened a lot of doors and suddenly all this stuff I was working on my my fiction became of interest to people yeah um, I don't, don't know sometimes where a story begins and a poem ends it's all kind of the same thing and what's interesting about the night alphabet is that one of the strands one of the tattoos but I'll explain the book in a minute yeah. but <laughs> one of the tattoos in the book is um is called oh Maryville which is um, an envisioning of an old dyke bar. And it's basically, it's a story of reincarnation. What happens to women when they all go? Well, they, I imagine they're all in this same place together. And it's this big old dyke bar, bar called the Maryville. And that led, that story led to me writing the poetry collection Conto, which won the award. So it becomes this kind of circular thing where I take on different forms according to, yeah, according to the vessel that's holding it, I guess. So that was the sort of journey. And it, it, it's um, the night alphabet is the story of a heavily tattooed woman. And she's got everything tattooed, like even under her eyelids, you know, she's absolutely covered, she's haggard, and she's racing across Hackney in the 23rd century. And she's racing towards this tattoo parlour, which is a rep tattoo parlor which has got lots of sort of futuristic equipment i call this this um genre feminist queer uh, queer um futurism feminist queer futurism because it's a kind of sci-fi but not it's, yeah. it's kind of queer so she goes in and she wants one more tattoo and it's a line that draws that links each of the other tattoos together and as they're tattooing the ask you know what is this tattoo and so she tells the story and these stories are kind of quite outlandish and get stranger and weirder and odder and throughout them we also begin to learn this character's name her name is Jones and we learn about her family so it's basically um, three women trapped in a tattoo parlor all night talking about tattoos until finally we realize a thing the end I think the end. <laughs> Honestly, it's so, it's so. I feel like the story itself goes. I feel like obviously you can't give much away, but like it goes, it transcends so much of like perspectives, different like ways of viewing the world and specific situations. You can be in a situation, you can be both. Like, it's very obvious who, like, the bad guy is sometimes, but then if you put yourself in position of that bad guy, how bad do you think you are? And Exactly. I, I feel like that was a really, like, interesting takeaway for me of that. 
because I can oh, yeah. so quick to be like, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was really, I mean, it was really interesting to me to look at one story. So it could be really simple, like um, you walk down the street, somebody punches you in the face, the end. So we tell Rachel's story of being yeah. punched in the face. Then we tell the story of the guy that punches in your face. Then we tell the story of the child who's looking at it down from a tower block. You know, then we tell the story of the punch, but it's mm. the idea of being able to flit between these different perspectives, multiple perspectives and characters, um, you know, until you find the final truth. <laughs> Whatever that may be. <laughs> Whatever that is. Whatever that is. No, I, honestly, I thought it was really smart. Um, and I feel like sometimes I can read stuff like this and it goes over my head, but like I felt I was really absorbed from the off essentially and okay. um, I had like favorite stories like within it um oh, I've wrote them down because I actually had the names written one sec where is it yeah so my top three were the good daughter gutter girls yeah. and the editor brilliant great choices Great choices. Um, the editor, when I was doing that, which was pretty much, it was it's the final story in the book. And it was mm. only when I was doing that, which is some 300 pages later. Oh, I understand. It was that final story that started to give me, um, to solve the puzzle of these different characters and how they're related. I think yes. it's really important if not to know the answers not to know it because if you do it becomes kind of laborious and also the, I think the reader can tell you know but if suddenly in the middle of something you as an author go oh god yes. oh, yeah then hopefully that that transmits to the reader as well and they have that little moment of bloody hell of course yeah yeah, yeah. I'm really glad you like those so gutter girls I absolutely it's my favorite story to write came out in like half a day because loved it devoured that one rapid yeah like that was so good and i just love when like female rage is actually written by women for a start because like it's i had like a fire in my belly i wanted to like go with them like i felt like i was one of them <laughs> for like the entire time i think yeah it's really important to talk about female friendship and, and yeah. collectivity and the way we come together and the humour, a lot of humour in it as well. Yeah. And also to talk about drugs. Yeah. You know, didn't really talk about sex in it, unfortunately, I forgot. But I oh, talked... <laughs> well, drugs were something, you know, that's constantly going on. But often when we, when we have stories about women and drugs, then it's very morose. And we're focusing on the fact that she's snorting a line of cocaine or she's yeah. injecting heroin. But this is just in the background. They're just having a quick sharpener, you know, yeah, but this is before it. they go to work. But like, but like substance abuse, it can just be like it is casual. Like it is just part. Really of casual. It's part of the day to day. So it's kind of and like, well. This is my life experience. So that story is based on when I was a lady's maid. And it was, don't wait to think this was a continual thing. It was in exchange for trips up north when I was a kid in my 20s. I threw, I won't say who, but somebody said, we'll give you a lift, but you need to work 
um, it's in King's Cross, it's for the ladies in King's Cross, and it was just in a porter cabin, pretty much as I describe it in the story. Mm. And I was, uh, is it Joe, the character? Yes. Yeah. Joe. So Joe is me. That's me sitting there in my in my suit, dealing with the punters coming in to see the see the girls. Yeah. So it's kind of based elements of truth, but obviously the rest of it is complete conjecture. That's know. so interesting. Is there other elements of yourself in the others? Yeah, I mean, Omeriville is um, yeah. For the that was so of the listeners. Benefit of the listeners, I look like Chris Moyles. I'm an old butch dyke. Listen, all of us, all us ladies, we get to 75, turn into Chris Moyles. You know it, I know it. We've seen it. That's sick of me. So Maryville is is hugely based on on my experiences on the dyke scene and being a butch lesbian and all of that kind of stuff. Um, But I think, oh, I mean... The uh, uh, big story where she's this thing starts to happen to Jones that we, we're not really talking about. This the very first kind of big story in the book is about a fourteen-year-old girl called Fred, who's mm. a miner or or impersonates her father, a brother, to work in the mines during the middle of the eighteen hundreds, um, in a, in Brackley Colliery. So that's based on my own family. My my grandfather Fred. Taylor was a minor and his father was a minor and my all throughout and in the mid 1800s the females in my family were also minors but when they Victorians passed the law stopping females going down into mm. the mine they thought you know, um, interesting things going on it meant that women families started to die um, and starve because of this protection it's this odd thing where to protect women's purity you have to kill them so I wanted to write into that and to mm. think about that. So it's kind of related to the Taylor family, and it's the same colliery, etc. I won't give too much away, but it's based yeah. in the same place. They live Yeah, I yeah. Like how that was your family, but like based upon. Based upon, I mean, I mean, um, the world. I don't. I can imagine, and as as I'm sure you can, looking at your own heritage, that our ancestors who had a being. Are you north northwest as well? Yeah, Liverpool. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so not only were we poor, we we're bloody cold as well. So you know, we were, <laughs> So what? What would we need to do to survive? Can you imagine any of your female ancestors just dressing nicely, sitting in the corner of the room, waiting to die because they're not allowed to earn money? No, no, we'd fight like hell, you know? So I wanted to write something that is not only just a sort of honoring of of, of working class culture and and the people who worked in the mines, which was the, you know, the spine of the country at one point, Mm. not just that, but to honour women's uh, feistiness, resourcefulness at all ages. 
because in that household there are three females you know there's Jones's mother yeah um and there's also Pet who's Jones uh, sorry, Jones sorry Fred's mother and also uh, Fred's little sister Pet Petunia who is about three or four years old but is working in the mines because yeah you know we do need reminders yeah, um massively that's what I mean like I love a good like dystopian novel and like oh, because this goes back and forwards and present like it's you can't really like describe it as that but it does an art just like weave so much into it and what I will absolutely sing your praises for the whole book's fantastic but it's how you have dealt with such complicated like nuanced stories as well as a bigger story but with really beautifully like raw prose and obviously I presume that's because you're a poet but like wow and that's so hard to do and to maintain the layers of the narrative as well because sometimes it can feel like some authors can choose like either or mm. and you've done it all in like one talk to me about that <laughs> do you know and it, that's probably it's gonna be its biggest failing you know simplicity is so hard to achieve because our heads i don't know about your head but my head is like going out at several different angles at the same time yeah. things shooting out um but also, okay, now I'm gonna probably <coughs> confuse everybody. On, I want to talk let's... about I want to talk about narrative structure and picking up on what you just said about the different layers. So the typical story, as you know, is beginning, the middle, and end. I want you to suppose now that that narrative structure is based upon what we call the male morphology. So that's the male physical, I know <laughs> for the benefit of the viewers, I like me. <laughs> but but yeah so it's based on the male physical experience yeah. of life so it's quite an uninterrupted experience they don't have cycles or anything like that um it's based on the male sexual experience beginning middle end you yeah. know and it's, it's this kind of very straight journey what if and what i've tried to do in the night alphabet is to base the narrative on the feminine morphology so then what we have is the ability for multiple cycles. That's what the little stories are. Because you and uh, most women who, who are of reproductive age experience, you know, 12 cycles yeah. a year, you know, and then we have cycles within that. And then we get pregnant. This is where narrative gets really interesting. Because what if you could give, when you give birth, you're not giving birth necessarily to yourself. It's something completely different. It's a new story that belongs to the main story but it's its own entity so it was just really taking all of those ideas and of course the female experience of orgasm which is multi-orgasmic so yeah, that's, Sorry, lads. What, that's <laughs> so smart you know because like i've i've never really like thought of it like that but like same with most things it's all built for one type of people and one type of people only so mm. I, you are 100 percent right and i do think like yeah the cycles is such like a great like parallel to the structure mm. wow joelle you're so smart i see why you win awards <laughs> because because <laughs> but you know when you're messing around and you're experimenting with narrative like yeah. this narrative structure then it, it becomes difficult because the whole of society tells the same story yeah. there's this beginning there's the middle and then there's the end and there's a little bit of interference within those but that's it it's a straight line um so when you're trying to get people to think of of a narrative as more 
you know, there's the through line, but there's all these different cycles going on within it as yeah. well that separate off. I mean, it's hard to explain, so buy the book. Yeah, no, I think that's so smart. Because I'm, to be <laughs> fair, I'm like myself, I'm like three different people every month, me. I don't, and then I'll just change. <laughs> and again, and again. Exactly. I ask like questions about your, I say like awards, like your favourite, your least favourite, and all the rest of it. So, which story, because I've said my top three of like the cycle story, away from the main narrative, which was your favourite to write? If you can choose, what do you reckon it is? I think, um, I think, uh, I mean, I, I loved writing the editor because I discovered something. But the one actually I'd like to talk about is Pipe Fish. Because this was where I was sent, uh, one of the young women that I mentor, I was telling her about this thing called incels. I started writing this in 2018, so, you know, way, way back in time. And she said, oh, you need to look at this website. It's called Dead Eyes, deadeyes.com. And it's video put up by incels, as we call them, of women giving up. And it just, uh, I got obsessed with incels. I just couldn't believe mm. the way that, you know, obviously as a, as a gay woman, I have my own <laughs> persecutions, but it's the way that ordinary heterosexual, you know, women are perceived by these people is so terrifying and frightening yeah. and disgusting. So I did a deep dive and, re and, and it was the hardest story ever and it took ages because I, I set myself the challenge of trying to find something lovely about him, trying yeah. to work out how he got there, to find a tenderness, which um, I tried to bring out with his mate, Larson. Um, this is clearly a closet homosexual, but there we are. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking, I was like, not the internalised homophobia. <laughs> no way. Not, not the projection. <laughs> exactly. Here we go. So I don't know. I mean, that was, um, I was really pleased when I finished it because, yeah. but, you know, Gossip Girls was exhilarating to write. I was by myself. Um, I just finished a tour and I was li literally by myself for a week and, and it just fell out of the pen because I wanted to write something really irreverent and just fun. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and I could fun. see it in the film, like yeah. a kind of twisted, dirty merchant ivory. Like, yeah. I was. I was like, this is a series in itself. <laughs> I'd tune in. I'd watch it. And um, which character? Right, because that's quite a hard question in terms of like characters. But out of the three main women in the story, which do you feel like you're most drawn to? Not that you most are like, but just drawn to. At the moment, I'm really drawn to Gran, her grandmother. Yeah, I was. Because she's foul. And uh, I mean, she's just a very strong northern woman um, and she's clearly hiding a lot of secrets as well as tattoos. She's clearly hiding a lot of stuff. Um, but th there's a, a, a chance that the night after will be a trilogy because I want to tell the mother's story next Did and it. then end with the grandmother's. But I have to figure out. So I'm going to be thinking about the grandmother for the next three or four years until I understand completely how mm. this began that they began to be able to do this thing. Um, and it's kind of about, it's not about time travel, but it kind of is. It's very difficult to explain, but basically yeah. they're switching between 
different histories and different lives and different geographies and, and different genders. They're in and out yeah. of everything, you know. Um, so I'm fascinated by the grandmother because I think then we'll understand what has happened, where it's all coming from. Mm. I'd love it if this is a series. <laughs> so much. Because it's just so smart. Like, I just can't breathe. I was like, reading it, I was like, that's so clever. Like, how? How did you, like, how did you even plan this? Was it a case of, like, your standard, like, post-it note moments and you just kind of move it all around? Yeah. There's a lot of post-it notes and flip <laughs> There's a lot of paper all over the floor. But I, I'm a great believer in chaos. Like, we all come from chaos. You know, good sex is chaotic um, and, you know, can lead to birth. So same theory. <laughs> and I just thought, so the idea was very simple. The story of a, a woman's tattoo, it, that fact that it's a woman, a female, mm. is, is integral to it as well. Well, you'll understand when you read why that's more important. Um, because, you know, still today, these diverse women's narratives are underrepresented. So I wanted to tell stories just featuring women as well so I just started writing stories about women and then as it went on I was like okay okay this is how it connects oh my god and only right at the end I, in fact I cut loads of stories off which could go into the second volume but um when I started to really realize the characters of Jones and mom and gran mm. and and their relationship became the the warm place to go to for me as a writer always return to that living room or the kitchen yeah with a bit of tea or vodka you know and it's heavily based on the women in my own family you know who are um like me just yeah you know sense. dreadful I, people <laughs> I think yeah the best the best and the baddest I just think like how it just is like the fluidity of like human experience and like how you as a singular person could feel X amount of things and that might be different and then flipping it on its head. But then you just then flipped on its head again. And like at the end, I was like. <laughs> but I will That's say like. heartening to hear. Yeah, as like a working class lesbian though, thanks. Thank you so much, because great. I had a great time. I felt so validated in a lot of it as well, which was hard to come by to be honest um I think Maryville wasn't especially I was like oh and there's a I wanted to tell these true stories and again you you end up cutting a lot out just because you have yeah. a, you have a you know word count you need to to meet and it's a pretty hefty book as it is so there's so much more I wanted to tell you about these women in Maryville and uh and what's happening to particularly Butcher Dykes across the world. So my new collection is going to talk a bit more about that. But the murders of Butcher Dykes is 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 at huge level. Mm. You know, it's I can't remember the I didn't know the actual number, but it's a lot. It's a mm. lot, lot, lot. So I wanted to highlight that a little bit in the Maryville section. Um, and that, as I said, started out as wanting there to be a beautiful place that all these abused women end up in together mm. and I wanted it to be a bar because why should it be a bloody field with a fucking apple tree I want a pint 
Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And a pint and a game of pool, love, <laughs> when yeah. they die. None of us are skipping through meadows. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but then, it obviously, because because of who I am, um, I started to focus more on the on the, the the lesbian experience rather than just female. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. That. How was it writing from? Because I presume writing poetry to writing a book are kind of similar, but like a Venn diagram. But how did it feel sort of going for like one length of like literary sort of like portraying a story to like the very typical storytelling concept essentially yeah I mean they're very different forms to write in one is kind of um, a poem is it it's um it's a story told in a glance kind of mm. whereas this is the full wide angle you know technicolor cinema where you can really open up and look around the room so a poem tends to focus in on a moment on, yeah. Whereas in your fiction, you open out, you can see the room, you can see the window, you can see through the window. So yeah. it's that kind of, but that presents a problem to your your typical poet who, you know, who writes very, very intensely. Um, and, and for me, I'm a very quick writer of, of poetry. I might work on it quite a lot. Mm -hmm. But um, this novel I started in 2018, so the first problem you have is how do you hold an idea in your head for five years? Or rather, I mean, I took some, when did I hand it in? Um, 2023. So how do you hold something in your head for like that amount of time, four or five years? It's very, very difficult. A lot of post-it notes, Rachel, <laughs> everywhere. I went through menopause. I had no idea I was even writing a book. <laughs> Hot sweats, post-it notes everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know how you did to be honest. Like that's a sound, and and so started writing in twenty eighteen, handed it in last year. Yeah, so I got my first draft in. Um, I think yes, that was at the end of twenty twenty two, and then I did a little bit more editing and work on it. And when you hand a book in, it's about a year. Yeah. of work you do on it after you've handed it in. So the editors at the, at the publishing house mm. um, will have some comments. Actually, they, they had very little, but the right. proof editor right. had quite a lot to say to me. <laughs> Cut it down. She's just basically learned to spell. You know, I mean, <laughs> they're brilliant. Proof editors are incredible yeah. because they pick up the smallest mistake you make, which could actually cause you a lot of trouble someone uh, for a completely different thing I'd written down a list of names for this poem that's going in this big magazine and I because I've been reading off my handwriting and because I was reading Enderbelly yeah. I misspelled things and that would have looked awful so the approved editor goes in and you know looks at the word it and spell checks it you know they check everything that's good because yeah. also I couldn't be bothered to do that <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> I bet. Oh, nice one. <laughs> I don't fancy checking that. Cheers. That's so fun. So, are we working currently on a second one, or is it just like it's in here? Um, I've started. I've started the idea. I, I am um, very, very early days because I've just, um just signed a contract, well, I haven't signed the contract yet, but I've just agreed to another yeah. collection. Push your tracker, um, you publish your book next week, we'll let you off. 16th, 
February, come to Queen Elizabeth Hall, Southbank Centre. I'm um, performing a staged version of it um, alongside Russell Tovey. And it's all directed by I Neil I love Bob. Russell Tovey so much. <laughs> He's such lovely. a great person to choose. Yeah. Great. Love that. Yeah. And a great advocate of the arts, you know, and yeah. a great advocate of queer arts and he feminist is. art. Um, and actually, I met him doing a show called Blue, which was Derek Jarman's last film when we staged it and took it around, sold out all these dates. Blue is about Derek Jarman um, contracting HIV and dying of AIDS and how everything turns blue. And it's a very famous film, an art film. We took it on the road. It was directed by Neil Bartlett and it had um, Russell was in it, Travis Alabanza, me and Jay Bernard. And so we had this kind of little queer army resurrecting these stories of um, of the 1990s, early 90s and, and what happened to Derek and what happened to a generation of gay men. Yeah. But that's how I met him. So um, we've become friends through that, which is lovely. Fab, so 16th, where is it again? Queen Elizabeth Hall, which is a South Bank Centre in London. It starts at 8pm. Tickets are something like £10. Oh. So it's cheap. Please bring everyone you know and uh, shout all the way through it. Thanks. <laughs> shout! Heckle me. Actually, you know what I'm really excited is I don't know if you've seen an actual copy or a bound proof. But the actual copy, Rachel, is this, right? Yes. And each tattoo is in the book as an illustration. Oh, see, no, see, I've got this one, but that's like before. Yeah, that's it's... that's the uh, bound proof rather than the yeah. actual hardback. So, for example, this is the tattoo for Fine. our dark mother, and it go through it, goes through the whole book. So there's, that's I think, eleven smart. tattoos, eleven tattoos in there, and then during the live show, sixteenth of February. We're going to, they've been animated. So as I'm performing, the tattoos will come to life and or I'll, I'll interact and move around with them, you know. Wow. Kind of. <laughs> See what I'm saying? So smart. What are you currently reading? What am I current? Oh, very good. What am I currently reading? I've just finished Playboy by Constance Debray. And Constance Debray has become this kind of, um, kind of star of Parisian literature. She's written this kind of, what does she call it? Auto-fiction. So it's based on her real life story and she's from a very aristocratic Parisian family, French family, um, who are very famous within France. Um, and she was married with kids and then suddenly she shaved her hair off, got tattoos and started uh, shagging women. And it's a book at that moment. It's about that. And it, it's won lots of awards. The trilogies won, particularly the second one, which I think was called Love Me Tender. Um, <clears throat> so okay. this is the first part in the trilogy. So I read the second part before the first part. Um, it's so interesting. You should read it. Because I find it actually challenging. There's some things that, sh that are said in there that I'm like, excuse me? Mm. Really? But, you know, that's the joy of literature, isn't it? It's not just yeah. the story. It's the thinking. It's the philosophies around it and the conversations that come out of that. 100%. Flip side, what's your favourite book? And not favourite is in like, so the one that if you were to recommend, that you feel like you recommend the most, what would you say that is? Do you know what? I mean, obviously it's some incredible writing. Um, I, oh my God, 
the most recent one is called The Seven Days of Marley Almeida. And it's by Sri Lankan author. I haven't got his name here with me Mm -hmm. um, to read it out, but it won the Booker Prize in Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of years ago. It's amazing. It's playful. It's the cleverest book I've ever read. It's got a banging storyline, but it's about Sri Lankan politics and civil war. It's about a guy who's murdered um, by the army in Sri Lanka and how he goes to try and find his camera. So it's kind of a ghost story, but it's pilot. And that's why it won the Booker Prize. The one I recommend the most is called Push by Sapphire. It became a film. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I know this book. And it's it So I was looking off back in the 90s to see Sapphire read from this, and she's really informed the way I'm doing my own prose. Oh. So she was on stage and reading. She's this kind of magnificent woman, American woman, a black woman. She's on stage reading, and then she just threw the book over her shoulder and walked into the audience and carried on talking. And I was like, wow, yeah. you out. <laughs> and then what's the film called? What is the film called oh. that was made from it recently? Let's go on. Um, I'll give it a Google. Yeah. Um, which uh, it is an interesting thing because it, it shows oh, how... Precious, that's what it's called, Precious. But it shows how long it can take for a book to infiltrate into mainstream culture yeah. because that was huge in, what, 94, 95? Yeah. And only maybe, I don't know, five years ago did it come out as a, as a big film. Um, but I love it because it's the story of a woman learning how to write and learning how, how to deal with sexual abuse, you know. So that sounds really dark, but it's so... Uh, it's so inspirational. It's got that forward movement to it. Yeah. I just love, and I love the character. Of, I just of love her. a complex story, though. If I'm honest, like complex, like human experience. Sign me up. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm in for. Joel, I'm not sure you mentor people. I feel like I've been mentored. This has been great. I feel like I've learned so much, <laughs> and you blew my little mind. Great. <laughs> Perfect. Honestly, I, I don't, I, the night alphabet, I imagine, will be a massive success. And if it isn't, people are idiots because it's a great book. Thank you. And <laughs> Thank you, mate. Oh, so, no worries. Well, I'll stop. But All thanks, right. Joelle, so Thank much. You. You're a star and have the best, like, publishing week and just the best time performing as well. Thank you. Thank you. Can I click on? Well, that's it. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I know it was a long one, but wasn't it worth it? Like, wow, I felt so inspired after speaking to Joelle. Um, Hope you all have a fantastic rest of your day and I'll look forward to seeing you again next week. Okay, bye.